Welcome, welcome to our thesis theater today. We are so happy that that's working and I am delighted to be here today. I'm Elizabeth Baird Hardy and of course this is our Signum University thesis theater for uh, Kelly Rossi who's going to be telling us about her fantastic beast and fantastic thesis. We are so excited. It's been a wonderful process working on this project with Kelly. So I'm really excited to share it with you today and I am really looking forward to having you get to know a little bit more about Kelly's fantastic work. She is an experienced presenter. She's presented at a variety of conferences. She's published some wonderful work in the Harry Potter for Nerds collection, the second one. And she is a wonderful seller and reader of books, a person who really loves books and does wonderful things with books. So um, I'm delighted to get to let her tell you a little bit about her project. Um, and so I hope that everyone who is watching gets to enjoy this now. And if you don't get to watch it live, of course, we are recorded. You can watch the recording later. And we also want to thank Sigma, of course, for all the terrific um, opportunities that we have. And also don't forget that we are in the middle of the uh, fun uh, drive right now. We do that to do a little commercial and make sure that um, many people get to benefit from the wonderful resources we have through Signum. So um, Kelly, I will, um, I'll be quiet for most of this because you have so much to say. So I don't want to uh, steal your thunder very much, but I do want to uh, get things going a little bit today and let you tell us a little bit about the thesis. You can share the abstract or that a little bit more informally if that's more comfortable for you as we think about the kind of the overarching idea of your thesis, fantastic beasts, and why to find them, uh, why we're interested in those fantastic beasts. So I'll let you go ahead and tell us just a little bit about your thesis and then we'll get in a little bit more deeply. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. Can you hear me? Everything is working okay? You sound wonderful. Everything sound okay on this end too? Yes. <laughs> Obviously um, we have Norgals in the computer, so if there's anything yes, odd. I, I had a suspicion. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I studied Harry Potter, I studied the Rings. Um, when it came time to think about my thesis, I knew I wanted to do it on Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, but Harry Potter kind of called to me. Um, I've looked at the gothic aspects of Harry Potter, the kind of alchemical aspects. Um, and one thing I didn't do is uh, I have such, I love animals and I love uh, learning about them in the real world. And I kind of thought, why not study them in the wizarding world? Uh, especially with uh, the new movies coming out, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I just sort of started thinking, you know, JK Rowling, said she wouldn't really ever revisit Harry Potter, or I guess she said never say never, but she was sort of done when she finished book seven. Um, and so I find it really, really interesting that when she did revisit, and I mean, five movies is a lot to, to, to do. Um, of course, when she first signed on, it was just three. But um, when she did decide to revisit the world, she wrote a protagonist that cared so deeply for animals. And Newt Scamander is such an interesting character, um, such an in interesting protagonist. And those movies are very, um, very interesting and fun, uh, especially in the realm of animals and magical creatures. And so I sort of started thinking, what is she trying to tell us? What is she trying to do? Can we kind of see any sort of connections between what's going on or what will go on in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them movies and what Harry experienced with animals in the original seven novels. Um, and Newt's character in Fantastic Bees, I have the screenplay here. 
what was so compelling to me as as a character there's this moment where he is uh, talking to Tina and it's when they first meet and they don't know each other very well. Uh, and he says, Newt tells her, I just completed a year in the field. I'm writing a book about magical creatures. Tina says, like an extermination guide? And he says, no, a guide to help people understand why we should be protecting these creatures instead of killing them, which I thought was very interesting. Later on, uh, he's talking to Jacob. Jacob gets it a little bit more than Tina. Uh, and, uh, and he says, Jacob says, so what, you rescue these creatures? And Newt tells him, yes, that's right. Rescue, nurture, and protect them. And I'm gently trying to educate my fellow wizards about them. <laughs> and so we have this like point driven home in just the introduction to Newt that it's not just caring about magical creatures, but it's about protecting them and educating people about them. And so I thought that that was really interesting and I wanted to delve a little bit more into that. Um, and so I kind of went back and looked at the ways Harry experiences animals, um, what sort of animals, and I kind of use animals and magical creatures because it's both sometimes, um, and what Harry walks away with um, from his experiences. Uh, so I wanted to kind of start everything. I, I thought I had to start with the original textbook that Newt's commander wrote, which is fantastic use and where to find them. Um, and so I looked at sort of what it was doing. Um, of course, a main point is that this is modeled after the medieval bestuary, which was a catalog uh, very uh, popular in the uh, Middle Ages. Um, and it was a catalog of creatures, some of them imaginary, some of them real, um, but all with characteristics, um, notes about behaviors, and even moral lessons about um, what we could take away from these creatures and learn from them. Um, but so popular in the Middle Ages um, and definitely influenced thought about animals, um, treatment of animals, and science and how we looked at animals, um, and definitely influenced the, the textbook. It's very clearly modeled after uh, Fantastic Beasts, or, or their, this book is modeled after. Uh, bestuaries. And I found some interesting things when I first started digging into it. I'm going to pull up my thesis here. Um, one of the things that I found interesting is in the original medieval bestuaries, a lot of it was maybe based on actual observation. Um, of course, a lot of people wouldn't have seen, you know, a lion or seen even a swan or, of course, a unicorn. Um, but nonetheless, they were talking about them and explaining their characteristics and talking about, um, about what sort of animals they were. Um, so there's some scholars who uh, like to say that the best array is a serious work of natural history, as T.H. White saying that. Um, but many other scholars talk about uh, how the actual animals were secondary to the main purpose of teaching humans a lesson, a moral lesson. Um, so mostly they were kind of, anim these animals were used to instruct human behavior and thought rather than to inform society on animals in their natural world, uh, which is very different from Newt's Fantastic Beast um, because he is sort of based all of his research in actually going into the world of these animals 
and learning about them. And um, what I really like, um, let me get to it. There's some similarities um, throughout fantastic creatures are described in relation to how they best serve witches and wizards. Um, that is also uh, something that medieval bestiaries did. Um, they allude to valuable parts of animals um, for human use, um, things like that. Um, and again, you have this idea in both Fantastic Beasts and the medieval bestiaries that animals are less important than what they represent to humans. Um, that's Joseph Nick who wrote uh, the uh, Fabulous Beasts, uh, actually, this wonderful book. <laughs> uh, he said that, um, but, so there's definitely some similarities, but the main difference is of course, Newt. Newt's behind the Fantastic Beasts book. Um, there's actually an author, uh, Medieval Best Rays, there wouldn't be one author. Um, there are many people worked on them, many scribes worked on them. Um, it, one single manus manuscript would of course pass through many different hands in illustrating and writing it. Um, but, uh, fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is all newt. And we have this wonderful introduction in uh, the actual the textbook of Newt talking about his studies and talking about what he wanted to do in writing this book. Um, and so he he says, we try to find the... Uh, it's the part about him being encrusted with hork lumps. <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Uh, it's a wonderful that, description. Um, yeah, okay, I'll just pull it from the book instead of my thesis. But um, he says, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them represents the fruit of many years' travel and research. I look back across the years to the seven-year-old wizard who spent hours in his bedroom dismembering work lumps, and I envy him the journeys to come. From darkest jungle to brightest desert, from mountain peak to marshy bog, that grubby hork lump encrusted boy would track, as he grew up, the beasts described in the following pages. I have visited lairs, burrows, and nests across five continents, observed the curious habits of magical beasts in, hundred, in a hundred countries, witnessed their powers, gained their trust, and on occasion, beaten them off with my traveling kettle. <laughs> so, and so this is based in actual, a journey for him, the author. Um, it might be built on the model of a medieval bestiary, but, um, the contrasting edition of an enthusiastic, accomplished author suggests the importance of experience, wonder, and discovery of these creatures in the wizarding world. Um, and I, I just love that. Um, and so looking at this and looking at Newt as such an important part of this book, um, I kind of thought, well, this, this textbook, when it was published, uh, actually has Harry, like if I'm going to look at Harry, Harry's experiences with animals, we actually have Harry's experiences with animals as like little annotations in the book when it was published. Because again, Harry has experience with these animals and sometimes more experience than Newt himself. And so you kind of have this, this constant reminder throughout this textbook when you're reading it of Harry's own experience with magical people creatures, um, of Harry's own real world experience with these creatures. Um, and uh, 
something fun I sort of thought of and wrote about in my thesis was that Harry's annotations throughout this book sort of actually act um, as kind of like a medieval, medieval scribe would, um, making annotations and editing as they, as they go, because they would do that despite having any real world experience, they would make, uh, they make edits and additions and, um, and just do kind of what they wanted when, when compelled to. Um, and so I thought that, that was really interesting and very touching moments in here. Um, some very funny, um, <laughs> in the first entry to, uh, Acromantula's, uh, it's rumors that a colony of Acromantula has been established in Scot Scotland or unconfirmed, uh, in which it's crossed out unconfirmed. And he writes confirmed by Harry Potter and Ron Weasley. <laughs> um, that's a, that's the very first, uh, edition but uh one of my favorites is of course near the very end and uh it is the entry for werewolves and it's werewolves and it's edited to say aren't all bad and so from that you can see that real world experiences with animals can help you understand humans of course because lupin um and so <laughs> Uh, so I found that really interesting. Um, what this all kind of drives home is, of course, uh, that throughout the Harry Potter novels, Harry's authority on the subject comes from having met, communicated, and in some cases fought with these creatures. Um, it's through real world experiences from interaction and connection with animals that Harry has led to an increased awareness and knowledge that goes beyond what he can learn in a bestiary like textbook. Um, and so I think the Harry Potter series in general sort of wants to investigate this. Um, the magical creatures that roam the pages of Harry Potter um, definitely establish the fantastic setting of the series. But I think Rowling is never quite satisfied with these creatures being whimsical embellishments. Um, I think instead she uses these animals to explore the relationship between humans and the natural world. Um, scholar Peter Dendel, who's written, uh, who's written on this um, animals in Harry Potter, uh, says that the responsibilities of stewardship over the realm of magical creatures is a continuous anxiety in the Harry Potter series. Um, and I think that is very true. So like the medieval bestiary, Rowling uses animals in her series to com communicate this anxiety of animal stewardship to the human leader. Magical creatures like werewolves, giants, and centaurs are used to explore real-world racial tensions, bigotry, and prejudices. Creatures like house elves and mermaids provide social commentary on human rights and a variety of complex moral issues. But Rowling rarely gives, gives the reader an intended an actual real answer to these questions up front, and she instead pushes the reader and Harry alike to gain first-hand experience with animals in order to explore the relationship between humans, animals, and the natural world. And so that is sort of the first part of my thesis, um, kind of looking at why you're going to actually look at animals and why it's important and why the time is very, very right to look at animals, but with Fantastic Beasts uh, coming out in theaters. Um, Am I good? Is this could just keep going? You're doing fantastic. I was just going to interrupt you. In fact, one of the things I really wanted to talk with you about, uh, because I want to share that with other people because I love it so much, was your depiction of Harry as the scribe. I love that idea because it's so easy to think of him as 
just an obnoxious schoolboy writing things in a book. But instead, I love how you've evolved that idea into something more complex, which is his connection. And it's really interesting. I know you talk about this in your piece as well about the authors. Rowling's always, every book has an author. Books always have an author. So, and when they don't have an author, we have to be suspicious. It's the half blood prince, and there's your voice, or Jenny's diary. You, know, you have to always be suspicious of who is the author. So Harry's engagement with Newt in that text is really beautiful because even though they're obviously very different kinds of people, they both have that sense of experience being much more valuable than just what's in the book. And so, so I really love that you went ahead and mentioned that because that was one thing I definitely wanted you to talk about today. And as you think about that idea of kind of experience sort of versus expectation, and certainly, and I always have to wonder about those medieval books. And I wonder if anybody ever used those like as a nature guy to go out and say, oh, well, that's a lion. Here's how he's going to behave. And then of course the person gets because clearly that is not a good nature guide to follow. But as we think about your experience as a scholar and crafting this study, and it's been a wonderful experience. And I know you've gone through a lot of evolutions with it and it, it's really grown and developed and found this terrific treasure trove of resources. How has your experience with the material and with your observations, how have those kind of meshed together? How did, how did it change as you went through the process of both looking at how Harry and, and Newt both uh, look at these animals and then also what that teaches us on a larger scale? Yeah, I thought uh, when I first started this thesis, I thought I did a lot of research on medieval attitudes towards animals because I thought, and there is, that's a ripe area for study um, in the Harry Potter world and how they connect. Um, but I, I sort of, and it sort of touches on it a little bit um, when both the medieval bestiary and the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them textbook is um, very, very concerned with how uh, how animals are of use to humans. Um, that's a big one. Um, but I did a lot of a lot of my early research definitely um, was structured around um, medieval attitudes towards animals, which is very interesting. Um, and there's a lot to unpack. Um, there are images of, of course, the wild man in folklore and medieval um, literature that I think I can definitely could have wrote, written separate papers on, on Hagrid as wild man, Sirius as wild man, um, this medieval brisk you, know, uh, you know, there's medieval werewolves that we could see, we could make connections to Professor Lupin. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot to study and there's a lot to, um, there's a lot in that. But when I was reading the books for this thesis, I found myself focusing more on the actual experiences that Harry has. Um, and particularly with um, monsters and in what that might mean. Um, and so instead of sort of thinking about, well, you know, the basilisk is a monster and, you know, these are like the serpents and all of these sort of creatures that we identify with, you know, as, as evil um, versus good. Like, I didn't just want to be like, well, this is a stand-in for medieval symbology and imagery. The lion means good and means noble. Um, I wanted to go deeper. Um, so instead of looking more just like on the symbology of, of things, 
see what Harry walked away with, if anything. So it kind of evolved into uh, looking really deeply at at animals. And so if I didn't get my, I didn't get very far into the book one before um, writing about it. I don't think I got past page two without uh, needing to write about <laughs> about things. So uh, so in book one, I mean. I realized I didn't even know this until I wrote the thesis, but um, but J.K. Rowling uses animals from the very start, from chapter one, to <laughs> signify magic in the wizarding world, um, and that kind of became uh, the impetus for me to write about how um, you know Mr. Dursley, who is Muggle, to like <laughs> from head to toe, he is a Muggle, um, and he he kind of blinds himself to the listening world and blinds himself to magic, most notably and right off the bat by ignoring nature. So his, his talking about him going to work and he sees a cat and he's just like, oh, what's that? Doesn't think anything of it. Um, he goes to work, he sits with his back to the window and he doesn't, it actually says in italics, he didn't see the owls flying past him. You know, his back is literally turned to the natural world, physically, um, and of course, spiritually and emotionally as well. Um, when he drives back, you know, he doesn't understand cat like cats' characteristics enough to be like, well, that's kind of weird. How do cats actually act? Should they be that stiff? Uh, and this moment is contrasted right away when Dumbledore knows, of course, it's Professor McGonagall. But interestingly enough, uh, he doesn't say, he doesn't recognize her by markings. Like you think that they would have a close relationship that it just comes out as, as oh, well, of course I know your cat figure, you know, you've got your your mark, your glasses, your markings, or uh, he doesn't say that. Instead he says, um, you know, my dear professor, I've never seen a cat sit so stiffly. So you've got this idea right off the bat in, in Harry Potter that knowing animals, paying attention to the natural world, knowing how animals act naturally will open your eyes to magic, the magical world. Um, and you've got that sweet moment with Dumbledore and McGonagall. Then right at chapter two, you've got that moment with Harry and the snake from Brazil. And again, contrasted right away from uh, Dudley and Mr. Dursley, who's tapping the glass. Uh, they're bored with it. They want the snake just to entertain them. Um, that's all they see the snake for. Uh, and they walk away bored. Um, but Harry, who is uh, curious and inquisitive, starts talking and communicating to the snake. And he sees the snake for what it is, a creature, uh, and a creature that is uh, contained, um, and talks to it and asks, asks a question. And he meets the snake on its level. They're eye to eye, but it actually is like they both rise and see each other eye to eye, um, which it, there's a whole other massive note about Harry's identify, identifying with the snake um, in there. But uh, but it's because of this attention to animals that opens up Harry to actually perform magic. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not the first time he performs magic, but it's the first time we, the reader, witnesses that performance of magic and it comes directly from connecting with an animal uh, and so this is just from you know chapter one chapter two of, of harry potter and the social stone um, and it just continues on from there 
I love that you mentioned that. It's it's really funny. We could have planned this out. It's like every single passage I've wanted you to talk about, you've already hit on, which is wonderful. <laughs> and that passage, here, I love how you point that out in your thesis about, and what's fascinating to me is that, you know, if you or I were to see a cat behaving strangely, we might think, okay, this cat is behaving strangely. Vernon Dursley knows for a fact that there are magical people in the world. He knows this. And, and yet, yep. and so it never occurs to him that, so he just, he, it's not just, it, it's this willful act of that, that turning yep. his back, as you mentioned, I love that description of that. So I love the close reading that you've done is so nice in order to catch those wonderful connections. And, and of course, your central texts are uh, Newt's text, uh, which has all those wonderful layers being it's this wonderful meta text as well as being in the text. And then um, and then the seven books, although I do have a friend who says that it's not seven books, it's one book, it's just 4,100 pages. But it's sort of like, it's just sort of arbitrary with put it into seven books, like the Lord of the Rings being broken up that way too. It's not really a, a normal, uh, natural way to break it. But when, we, uh, when you look at those texts, in addition to your wonderful close reading, which of your um, other sources, because you look at those, these wonderful medieval texts and a lot of others, were there any of those that you just said that that text right there that was the key that was the one that opened up everything else for me there were a couple uh um peter dendel's uh animal stewardship in the magical world was very very interesting um basically argues that in a different sort of way that um and he breaks it down like one of the most difficult things about studying animals is what sort of animals and where's the boundary of animals and magical creatures that are human-like and of course this is something that that you know in text they struggle with um you know when do you start talking about mermaids and centaurs and are human-like and the classifications are very interesting uh peter dundell uh kind of breaks that down and talks about um stewardship uh paying attention to these animals um i really really liked that essay um another one is uh, let me get that actual oh wait i should have it in my bibliography it's not in your purse <laughs> your beaded bag stacked up medically <laughs> yeah um melody melody dawson sugared violence and conscious wands deep ecology in the harry potter series um i really liked that essay and it kind of opened up some things about um about the different worlds of Again, Mr. Dursley, kind of the, the prim, proper, clean world and the natural, dirty, messy world of, of the natural order. Um, uh, those two, were, I really enjoyed those works and I suggest reading them if you're interested in this topic. Um, yeah, they were good. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was checking. We have some wonderful questions because I have more questions, of course, too. Um, but we've had some great questions and one that, that I love that I really really want to talk about since somebody else asked it I'll ask it too because especially and the, your sugared wands was really the one that made me think of that too the sugared violets in the conscious one because it's interesting and we had this, this wonderful question that just came from one of our attendees and thank you everyone for joining us and for your patience today the, the idea of magic in the natural world of course Harry we see primarily with animals but what about Neville and his affinity with plants we had this and, and I'm, I'm very interested in medicinal plants historically and that kind of thing. But uh, we have this great question about that. And of course, we know that like Neville's kind of the also ran, uh, you know, if, if so if he were the chosen one. So, you know, what is that something maybe you would want to explore further? That sounds like maybe a, a sequel. Oh, I would 
Absolutely. Like the under, I, I didn't, I didn't touch it to be honest. I didn't touch it. I, one of the things that I would like to do uh, work when I work more with this essay and paper, um, which is, I hope to do is I was very interested in meeting these creatures in the Harry Potter world, in their own realms, in their natural world. Um, Cause I think that's, what's really important. And there are so many times um, that Harry does that, you know, he, he doesn't meet mermaids face to face in his world. He goes into the lake and meets them in their world. Um, and there's definitely some interesting things. Um, there's many moments where animals are brought from their world to ours. And this is going to be, this is, I mean, having not studied Neville and, and plants, this is kind of a total side. Uh, maybe a tangent to answer to your question, um, but mostly I just think it's a really great question, an area to explore. But in thinking about plants, the natural world and that sort of thing, um, one of the things I liked, uh, I discovered in writing this was um, I was looking at the monsters and looking at the basilisk as a monster. But it wasn't really until I wrote the thesis that I realized the basilisk doesn't actually you know it was brought from the wild to hogwarts and uh it's it's in captivity essentially um i don't know if it's acting against its nature but it is almost only exclusively acting on instructions from a human um because it does not it's it's been sleeping in harry in uh, hogwarts for 50 years and it's only until voldemort uh through jenny wakes up and starts instructing it that it kills um is it against its nature maybe not but it's not doing it uh, because of its own volition um and so you've got this idea of when you bring creatures from their natural world into ours you know you've all these sorts of questions about um their own nature versus nurture um again baby norbert um that's it, that's a really good example um, brought in from the wild. And one of the most interesting things about uh, Harry's relationship to, to dragons is baby Norbert and helping him escape back into the wild. Um, and so the natural world, it, I mean, it is very interesting in the, in the wizarding world um, and plants definitely play a huge part in that. Um, I would love to study more about uh, the plants and animals that are used in the wands themselves because I think it's very interesting that wizards harness magic through the literally the natural world. It's it's a wand made from, from wood and made from like infused with animals, um, and there's definitely something to that. And Neville would be very very interesting to study. That would be fascinating. So I just thought that was a wonderful question. Um, as we think about and another thing, and as you think about kind of things, things that would be fun to explore. But um, as you were working on the research and kind of shaping the project, no, no, uh, we're getting these wonderful questions. I don't know, maybe somebody else is cooking a thesis, uh, which I would, I would love to to, uh, to see that one. But as we think about uh, other folks who are doing scholarship, and of course, many folks I know who are watching either now or recording, maybe thinking about their own projects, their own research. Um, and I hope that's one of the wonderful things that happens with a project like this. I learned so much, which is just wonderful. I love working on this with you because I learned things. And that's that's how scholars work. We work in community and conjunction. It's, it's a symbiotic relationship, just like with the animals. So we're we're able to make those wonderful connections. 
So I hope that other people are thinking about ideas that they would like to explore with further scholarship, of course. But we also want to be very honest about that and not to have people have unrealistic expectations. Were there challenges that you encountered? And I think about hearing some of these things that happen with the animals. And, and again, sometimes they just, as they say in Jurassic Park, they just do what they do. Uh, but sometimes when they do what they do, you're in danger from that. But were there challenges or, or things that you encountered, hopefully not scary dragons, but things that maybe you hadn't foreseen that for you have helped you to grow as a scholar and maybe help you further developing this idea or working with other projects or that maybe you could say, that's that's great advice for somebody else um, mm -hmm. as well as something I want to keep in my toolbox from now on. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the One of the biggest challenges was when I originally came up with this idea, I was going to focus much more on uh, the films of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And the challenge with that is that there's only two. It's a story unfinished. Um, and at the time, I remember you and I definitely talked about this, is, uh, uh, you know, what do we do with some, a character like Nagini, who apparently is a person? Uh, and <laughs> uh, and so, uh, oh, and she is, she's the person we like uh, in, the, in, the, in the movie. But we know she will not be. So, um, so that was a really big challenge, and I I definitely could talk about that, and definitely could do uh, footnotes and all this sort of stuff um, in my thesis. But I think the difficulty of that made me look more towards uh, the original series, and so it just kind of grounded me in the material that I knew and loved already, um, and that that was a kind of silver lining of that obviously really big challenge um, in writing about a character that, you know, Newt Scamander, we know a lot about him in the movie, but the story is unfinished and if all goes well, to my mind, he will stay a character like that. Um, but I don't know if, if he'll falter. I don't know how he will falter. Um, I don't know what connections I can make on a solid ground between him and Harry because his story is left unfinished at the moment. Um, so that was a big challenge, uh, but but like I said, it was sort of made me return to the original um, the original novels more, and I saw so many more connections with Harry and animals um, than I than I thought. Um, I, I knew the big ones, but even just looking at the relationship with Harry and Hedwig, um, sort of took it for granted that he had a, an owl. Like oh, of course, like yeah, it he has Hedwig in the sentence. Um, but actually, no, Hedwig helps him throughout all the novels, and like it's actually their bond. Like they have an incredible bond. Um, mm -hmm. In book three, when you know uh, Mr. Dursley makes Harry lock her up, and she can't fly around, you know, he basically begs him to be able to let her free, and so he does. And Harry gets freedom for Hedwig, and Hedwig repays that by going straight to his friends. Ask, mm -hmm. like pecking them for birthday presents, <laughs> bringing those birthday presents and owls back um, to Harry. So there's like this reciprocation, there's this freedom um, that Harry kind of always gives animals from the start um, and it is always rewarded with them. So that was that reward um, in freeing animals, uh, which we see time and time again, Dobby, Hedwig, um, the dragon at the end of book seven, um, Buckbeak, uh, Buckbeak was huge. I, I knew I was going to talk about Buckbeak, but, um, and I, I knew that in some shape 
or form, I was going to talk about the Marauders, but um, but looking at closely at book three was was really interesting as well as well. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but oh, that's wonderful. No, it's just giving you an opportunity to talk some more. And I love um, how you mentioned about, of course, Hedwig's connection, but also that she comes from Hagrid. Uh, one of the other things that I really enjoy in the thesis is your treatment of the wild man because, and you said you wanted to do that a little bit more, but Hagrid is, is, is being described primarily in animalistic terms and the, that great description. I, the, the baby dolphin boots is always one of my favorite uh, mm -hmm. descriptions in any of the books. But as we think about Hagrid, and because you mentioned Buckbeak, which is maybe like Hagrid's greatest failing in education is that uh, yeah. you know, really this is, this is not how you teach class the first day. Pedagogical theory out the window. Let's just terrify the students and put them in the hardest lesson possible. But uh, from that, um, what I think is really interesting, and I loved your analysis of Hagrid, as a teacher um, and as a, as a person who teaches, how does Hagrid actually function? He doesn't, his pedagogical theory is really off, but as far as, as a practical teacher of, of animals, of the thing that he loves, how would you evaluate him? How would you regard him as, is, is, is he a good teacher? Yeah, it will, it depends. The teacher is only as good as their understanding of their student, not the subject <laughs> material. And so you can kind of take that um, to, to mean a student is only good as, if they're studying animals, they can only under, understand them fully if they experience them and know them. Um, and so Hagrid is this great example of, is he a good teacher? I'm not quite sure, but he throws animals into, it, into his students. Here it is, go for it. <laughs> um, and there's an advantage to that. I think he, as wild man again, he brings the wild in. And um, that's not something that uh, students do. We do see the opposite of this in books five, with uh, Umbridge, who stops, you know, everything, every, all hands-on experience comes to an end. And we see the detriment and the effects of that. Um, and so we may not be invited to see Hagrid as the best teacher in the sense of um, safety, maybe. <laughs> but if we compare him with someone like Professor Umbridge, who takes away all of that experience, and only learns from a textbook, um, we can come to see that, uh, that there's a, who knows the best way, but there's definitely a wrong way, and the wrong way is just by reading and without actually experiencing the, the world around you. Um, and so Hagrid really, and he goes beyond just being a teacher, right? He's, he's so, he's a guide for Harry. Like, he's the one who takes him to um, Diagon Alley. He's the one who gives him uh, his, his ticket to, platform nine and three quarters um he tells harry that uh that he can buy all of his, the things he needs in london if you know where to go and hagrid knows where to go and so he is he's kind of this father figure to um to harry throughout the the series and leading him and guiding him and what i found most interesting and what's so compelling about hagrid as a character is how much he cares for creatures who might be labeled as monstrous or savage or dangerous. And he sees the good in them. Time and time again, he sees the good. Um, and that is such an important theme for humans looking at animals, humans looking at other humans, um, that it, the, the labels don't matter. It's, 
it's what you know about the creature. Um, and that's what I admire the most about Hagrid. So this is, um, I was going to say this is my fun question for last, but we'll, we'll follow up here because we've had very patient folks uh, staying with us and, and so we want to make sure we get everything covered. Um, but uh, I brought a friend and I know that uh, this is, uh, oh, I should have done that when you were drinking, Kelly, I'm so sorry. Is your dog with you? Do you have Lupin? Lupin's hanging out, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I figured he was. Um, but uh, I have cats who are like really unreliable. Like, uh, you know, Hagrid has little patience with cats because his allergies, like, it was just fun and funny. But uh, yeah, this is this is Dodger, uh, my Niffler. Oh, he's Aww. my daughter's Niffler. I, I stole him from my daughter. But um, I brought him down as our mascot today. But uh, clearly, he's bad luck. He brought the, the uh, nargles that affected our technology. But for you in this study, and just this may be just a fun question, but there, I think there may be something a little deeper here. Which of these creatures and, and of course, beasts and beings, that's such an important distinction in the wizarding world. But which of the creatures do, do you find the most compelling? Which of these creatures really speaks to you? That's, that's my favorite. I want a tattoo of that. Um, or, but, you know, maybe just, just more happening there in terms of the way that animal works as a cipher in the story or as something that is connected with your research you've done? Yeah, that is a very fun question. Um, I find they're all, they're all very fascinating, um, but it's, it's almost no question, the dragons. I, <laughs> I love dragons to begin with. I wrote probably a disproportionate amount of drag on dragons in my thesis, you know, yeah, only like five pages. Uh, <laughs> I love what Rowling does with dragons. They're not a main part of the series. Um, and who knows if they will be in the Fantastic Beasts movies. Um, my feeling is no, they won't. But um, but what I find so compelling about JK Rowling's dragons is the way she introduces them to Harry and the reader. Um, it, she could have easily introduced dragons as frightening and it, right off the bat, scary, monstrous creatures as something that Harry wants to stay away from. But she doesn't. She introduces Norbert. This is, we before we even see a big scary dragon, we see an egg and then we <laughs> see a hatchling and we see Hagrid connect with that hatchling and very in a very motherly, protective protective way, going back to Newt. He wants to protect and take care of, of this dragon. Um, and it's comical. Uh, it's it's funny to think that Hagrid is trying to take care of a dragon, uh, you know, fire-breathing dragon in his wooden home. Uh, mm. But I think it's very uh, interesting that she introduced Harry's introduction to a dragon is from birth, from from its you know, it's not threatening. It's it's cute. It's it's a little dangerous, but it's he's not afraid of it at all. And because he's not afraid of it, and because of his care for Hagrid, the, the what he has to do with the dragon is bring it to safety. And in in doing that, bring safety to his friend Hagrid. Um, and so he literally carries the dragon to the top of the astronomy tower and passes him off to where he will be more comfortable, more safe, and more nurtured by people who do want to protect dragons and who mm -hmm. can protect dragons better than someone like Hagrid. Um, and I love that introduction. And I think there's some fascinating things that 
Roland does with the dragon, um, because we see a dragon in book one, book four, and book seven, which if you studied the ring cycle, ring composition of the series, you know why, you know, that works. Book, se book one and book seven, you know, come full circle. And book four is the, the middle. It holds everything together. So it has elements of almost everything. Um, and so naturally we have a dragon in book one, book four and book seven. Um, and interestingly, we have a dragon in each stage of its life. In book one, we see baby Norbert in Book four, we see a dragon in its prime. It is it is scary. She is a formidable <laughs> dragon, frightening, powerful, fearsome dragon. Um, and in book seven, we see a dragon withered, old. I don't know, it's never said whether it's actually old in age, but if it's not old in age, it's made old by its treatment. Um, and so we have, you know, birth, in in its prime and withered and old and that stage in each stage of that dragon you know dragon's life harry is asked to look at the dragon and notice what's going on um i've explained a little bit in book one what how that happens in book four when he's uh the first task is dragons uh interesting and interestingly enough he only wins the golden egg by paying attention again to the dragon um he acts he notices what she's trying to do she's trying to protect her eggs um and in that I, he identifies with that dragon and sees her natural instinct to protect her eggs and he knows that he has to get her to come up slowly 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 away from the eggs so that he could just dive in right underneath um and if you notice when you're reading that that those that chapter, the dragon becomes less and less fearsome, particularly when Rowling is describing um, the eyes. I think mm -hmm. uh, I think it's like first evil eyes, and mm -hmm. she's describing that the dragon has evil eyes, but then it's fearsome eyes, mm -hmm. and then it's green eyes or something mm -hmm. like that. It's you know Harry notices it's subtle, but Harry notices more and more and more about the dragon herself instead of his own fear. Um, and again, in book seven, Harry, it's a pretty scary dragon, but Harry and Hermione and Ron all have to pay attention to that dragon. Um, and it's only in seeing what that dragon has gone through, imagining what it's gone through, knowing how it's been hurt. Um, it's only through that recognition that they're able to work with the dragon uh, for their mutual escape. And so you have this beautiful full circle moment where Harry is in book one carrying a dragon to its freedom. In book seven, the dragon is carrying Harry to his freedom and his escape. Um, and so I think what she does with dragons, they're not in there that much, but I think that they point to some very interesting moments in the series. And by far, probably my favorite moment in the movies it always gets me to choke up is that moment when the dragon they're escaping Greenbelt's bank and the dragon takes that moment before and all of the action takes that moment to breathe fresh air yes. and I just I think it's stunning I love it so much um, and I think it says a lot about what Harry is trying to do with freedom to animals and looking at them and considering them and not just looking past them 
Wonderful. And and I, I figured that's what you'd say. I'm glad because your treatment of dragons is wonderful. I'm intrigued since we don't really know the gender of that last dragon. Um, but Norbert, of course, turns out to be Norberta. And then we have the mama dragon. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that sort of the fierce female uh, role of the dragon, which is which is quite fascinating as well. And Nagini uh, is also female. So there's some, Nagini, definitely some interesting things. And then there is uh, a, quite a bit there. I'm taking on our time. Like I said, I know everybody's been so patient and I know that, uh, and we're all in different time zones, which is kind of fun too. As, uh, as we kind of try and, and wrap up, if you do have more questions, please send those questions to us uh, because um, questions are wonderful to add to the conversation and uh, to add, there's so much, there's so much that you have done already, but also I know that there's so much more you'd love to explore. As you think about the future of this project, of this research, are there areas that you would like to continue researching uh, are you planning some other ideas that you are going to pursue with this? Um, I, I don't know if that, if that plant idea isn't taken. That's a great one. Uh, but, but are there ways in which you are still mulling over this research? Um, clearly, as you said, Newt's story is unfinished. And so we, we and we'll have years, it'll be years before that story comes around full and we hope it does make a circle too i'm, I'm hoping since so five this next movie is going to be our crux so we'll see what happens there as we return and come back around to uh, hopefully five and one meet back up but as that continues uh, as pottermore has just been uh repackaged as the wizarding world now so there it's a long future for it's a story that's certainly far from over and is it far from over for you what areas of scholarship are you still hoping to pursue with these ideas or not at all? Yeah, I, um, I could write a book on this. <laughs> I could just, um, each, each part could be um, a chapter, honestly. Um, I would, a I touched a little bit on this, but I would love to study more. Um, I'm very interested in, you know, animals in the natural world can be a signifier uh, for magic, but it can also be, um, it's how, it's how wizards use magic, like the, the wands. I really, really want to study wands, um, in using the natural world, um, and, and, and animals alike. Um, I think there's definitely some, some things to study there, um, how, how wizards harness, um, there's obviously a lot of history and goes back into literature and folklore throughout the years, um, of specific, um, specific elements of nature that are more magical, there's just magical properties. Um, I think there's a huge um, uh, field for that, uh, just to study the folklore in the natural world in Harry Potter. Um, I would love to study the Marauders more in um, Animagi. I, I, I really liked what I got a chance to explore in uh, when I looked at book three. Um, I looked mostly at the one of the last chapters, Cat, Rotten, Cat, Rat, and Dog, um, which I loved. It's, it's definitely a moment where you are sitting down and literally listening to the animals tell the story. Um, there's definitely something to that. Um, uh, there's there's really so much, um, and of course, what I didn't even touch upon is creatures like centaurs and mermaids that are are hybrid creatures um, 
and I think there's a lot to explore in, in why we create these sorts of creatures in our imagination, why we've always created these sorts of creatures and what they do, how they compel us to think about the world um, being part animal and part human. Um, there's definitely um, some very interesting things uh, to do, uh, to look at uh, in those sort of hybrid creatures. Um, and of course, Fantastic Beasts. Um, there's a lot, I, I, like I said, I, I, you can't even, there's so many animals, I can't even touch on an animal like the Niffler uh, in, a, in a short, relatively short uh, thesis. Um, but so there's, it's just, it, there's so much to look at and the time is definitely right. Um, there are so many uh, people who recognize Newt for being a compassionate and um, thoughtful caretaker of the animal world. Um, there are organizations that are Harry Potter inspired and uh, that are, you know, they're vegan uh, uh, companies and, and organizations that um, want to protect animals through and kind of use Harry Potter as and new as uh, as their their guide. Um, and so there's lots of real-world applications as well um, that we can take away from these, from all of this work. Uh, paying attention to animals, loving them, caring for them, um, is really the guide to finding out our own humanity and our own place in the natural world. And I think that we could explore that in the wisdom world, but also our own. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm so excited to see where it goes. I hope that this project, I really do hope this is a little bit, you may feel a little bit like rolling now saying, okay, I'm, I'm done with these books. I, I got that kid through, we saved the world. We are able to see a finale and, and every, every all is well. So, and then she can't let it go. She has to go back. She has to continue. So it may be- uh, animals. Because, because the animals. So, um, and, and animals are like that. That, uh, they they just don't let us go. They look at us. That that one that you visit at the Humane Society and just looking at you. So uh, I know that uh, you will continue with your research, if not immediately. I hope that it really does continue very soon. So I'm super excited to see where it goes from here. And um, we're delighted that you've had the chance to share with us today about your research. Um, it's been an honor for me to be part of the process, um, and it very much uh, my my honor and my privilege to be part of, of your development with this project and seeing how it's growing. And I hope that it does continue. Uh, if we do have, I think we had one more question. It was it was about the gender question with the animals, which was neat. Uh, and, and we talked about that just a little bit. But uh, maybe something for you to consider for your book when that comes around. Are there other thoughts that that you didn't get a chance to share? I always like to give uh, folks a chance if there is something else that you definitely want to share as people are listening, as people are maybe considering their own research. They don't get to read this yet. Uh, they'll have to wait and read it when, when it makes its debut uh, as a book, which I, I think is probably uh, in the future uh, for certain. But uh, are there other thoughts that, and, and I love that you, you mentioned that uh, reading this isn't just something that we do as an academic exercise, um, because that's what that's what the humanities, that's what reading, that's what literature really does. It makes us better human beings. Um, we may not be wizards and, and have these abilities, but, but we can always be better humans. And so uh, that is a really important point. Are there other thoughts that, that you want to leave us with before we close out? Um, I guess I like, I like the idea of, um, of looking a little bit more in, um, 
in the ways that, I mean, we have a protagonist, but we also have um, an antagonist in the ways that someone like Voldemort um, or Umbridge um, doesn't uh, pay attention to animals in Dursley. I think that there are definitely some some lessons to be learned in that. Um, you know, and we start seeing this with Grindelwald in Fantastic Beasts. So keep an eye out. I, I, I have a feeling that we're going to see more and more of this in Fantastic Beasts of what the consequences of ignoring animals and ignoring the the little animal that you think won't be an issue, uh, won't be a problem. You just don't even, it's not even on your radar. Um, there will be consequences just like there are rewards when you do. Um, and I would very much like to see um, I would like to see Newt influence Dumbledore. Um, I think, think that's what's going to happen. I hope that's what's going to happen, but um, I'd, I'd really like to, there's definitely some things to study as these movies come out uh, to see what is to just not take Newt for, for surface value um, and to really see how his connection, his love and his protection and need to educate wizards and witches about these animals, how that influences the characters around him, people like Dumbledore, who then influence Harry. Um, I think that's sort of the, the message maybe to end on is, is as these movies come out, uh, have fun with them, but, but I think it's very interesting to think about what might be happening with a character like Newt and the animals that he surrounds himself with. Um, and how it in influences the books that have already been written. Um, there's some interesting things going on there. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for Thank sharing you. this work. Thanks for yeah. coming and thanks for all, all, everything that you've done throughout all of this time and all of your patience and encouragement. Um, I feel very, very lucky to be a part of a school that allows me to do this and um, friends and faculty that um, encouraged me about the, the whole way. It's been amazing and it's been very fun and um, I very I really appreciate it. Wonderful thank, and thank you. Um, we are and we want to thank everyone who joined us today, everyone who's joining us later on um, and watching a little bit later. So we are delighted that you had a chance to join us today. Thank you again for your patience with our technical difficulties here and thank you for supporting Signum. Um, and of course, you can check out more about Signum at uh, our website, find out a little bit more about other people's projects, other things that are going on, because if this is your first time joining us, and, and I hope that, uh, it's, and I know it will be your last, uh, if it's your first time seeing some of the wonderful things that happen, um, it's really exciting to see scholarship that students are excited about, that they're making wonderful discoveries, but that is really uh, beautiful, rigorous scholarship, and it's, it's just a joy to work with. Thank you all very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day and, um, and be kind to of us. <laughs>